0: Andrew asked me to talk about why I perhaps am enamored with grace. And I think he picked the right guy to do that uh, after three heart attacks and several more uh, hospital visits for VTAC and SVTAC. There's no doubt that grace abounds, at least in my life. A little bit about my life. I'm a Colorado native as an only child. I had a couple marvelous parents, lived with my grandma who was a bit senile which made her a wonderful playmate at age 8 or 10. One early memory I have of, of God's presence in my life was serving as an acolyte at the Episcopal Church just up the street from the sanctuary. I was finished, the priest dismissed me, and I went out and stood on the, on the steps of the church. And it was a little after midnight, I suppose. Uh, it was relatively dark, except for the glow of the street lights it was snowing lightly and the church bells were ringing from downtown and uh... i think back and that's i think when god put his hand on me and says son i got you and he did it took a while for it to sink into this thick head of mine uh, but he did we moved to boise idaho a couple years later Moved there mid-year and you don't make a lot of friends halfway through a school year and we were bought a house in a in a a block where new houses were being built so I kinda hung around construction sites for a while and it wasn't long before I was drawing plans of little houses of my own from then on I perhaps had no no desire to explore any other career except architecture It wasn't long before I tried to practice architecture with a view through the bottom of a scotch bottle and that didn't work real well and alcoholism was a very definite problem, both to me as well as to my family. I was counseling at that time with a gentleman by the name of Ken Wanberg. And finally one day, as we were walking from his private office to the front door of the suite, he put his hand on my shoulder and said, Biff, I think it's time you tried life without alcohol for a while. What do you think? I'm not sure I did anything more than nod, but I've certainly agreed with Ken. And to my knowledge, I've not abused alcohol since that time, and that was 30-some-odd years ago. It was the right word of God delivered through the person of trust at the absolute right time in my life. I think they call that grace. There was a divorce that followed from my first wife, and then I was kind of floating out there somewhere wondering, where God was, what I was doing, and uh, spent some good time with, uh, at a Presbyterian church. I uh, got involved in a retreat. They were having a party kind of as a wrap-up to this thing. I chose not to get to that party early, but walked up on top of a little ridge, and uh, the presence of God was, I think, all around me at that point. And I told God, I says, I don't know if you know what you're getting, but you got him. I don't know of a sillier uh, prayer of acceptance of the Lord in your life than that, but he seems to have honored it pretty substantially. I then moved on, married a a lady by the name of Molly, and Molly introduced me to the downtown the homeless ministry. And the first time I walked into that place, I didn't like the way it looked. I didn't like the people that were there. Uh, I didn't like the way it smelled. And the second week, I was dragging my wife out the door saying, wait a minute, we've got to get going, we're going to be late. Through that ministry, I met uh, a fellow, Richard Colesman. He indicated that that group that ran the coffee house had purchased five houses up Marion Street, just north of Colfax, and that they were doing some renovations. So I slipped a note under the door of the uh, director volunteering my time and uh, a kind of a mini ministry was born with the architecture as the background. I've since been able to go on and do work for a number of what I affectionately call my poor boy churches. There's not a lot of uh, of financial enjoyment coming from that, but I I, I do kind of know where every food bank in town is, so I'm in good shape even if times are tough. I think that there's evidence of grace in all our lives particularly as you get a little older and you look back you can see the silly turns that you made the stupid things the sin if you will and how God has used all of that to shape you and I into what we are today I think grace is there because the presence of God is always there and I'm not sure those aren't synonymous the, uh, the presence of God whether drunk or sober whether ill or well no matter Uh, is there if we just reach out and touch it
1: Lord God, just reveal yourself to us. Make your your presence known. We want to feel you. We want to see you. Lord God, shine like the stars in this place. Holy, Holy Spirit, send your fire and just burn. Just burn all the all the junk, all the crap that's in our lives that that's separating us from, from hearing um the good news, the truth. Lord God, speak through us. Help us to preach, Father God speak through andrew this morning father reveal yourself in a new way amen Amen. thanks michael and thanks to the worship team thanks for how you guys serve us uh through the music ministry uh let's pray real quick um god so lord of heaven and earth will you come and help us to preach this morning come holy spirit with with power and assurance so that we might grow deeper into the image of your son, Jesus. And it's his name that we pray, saying, amen. This morning, we're going to be um, looking at a passage from Matthew 28. I imagine it's familiar to you, but let's see if we can find an unfamiliar take on this familiar passage. Um, it comes from Matthew 28:16 through 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in or into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, look, see, I am with you always to the end of the age." So I imagine this is a familiar passage to you. Do you know what is commonly referred to? The Great Commission, right? You know what you might not know is it wasn't always a familiar passage to the church. In fact, for much of the church's history, especially, and what what I mean by recent history, like maybe um, the last thousand years, is for much of the time of Christianity in the West, and especially in Europe, it wasn't a very familiar or emphasized passage, and this has a lot to do with some of the cultural things that were going on in Europe at the time, thinking of the medieval period and on into the Reformation, for most of Europe was seen to be Christian, right? It was what we commonly now call as Christendom, and that's when the culture at large props up or takes a... Uh, has a worldview that is Christian, right? And so most of society functions from a Christian point of view or perspective. And so it was easy for a lot of people to move throughout their their everyday lives. And when they encounter someone new, they would, by default, uh, assume that that person was a Christian also, right? That's what we call Christendom. So you can imagine, then, in a cultural Christendom like that, uh, the Great Commission doesn't have a lot of force or power, or it has the potential to not have a lot of force or power. Because if you're assuming everyone's Christian, then where is the impetus to go and make disciples of all the nations? Do you see? Now, this changed around the turn of the last century, right around 1900 or so, when what we call the modern missionary movement. And for a number of reasons... Uh, One of which, people started looking at passages like the Great Commission and others and looking at them in a new light. But also, uh, something was going on in the globalization of the world, right? And so now you're running into, you're rubbing elbows with, and you're encountering new cultures and different religions and different societies. And so you can no longer assume that the world is Christian and the Great Commission has been accomplished, right? And so now you feel the impetus to go. And so you hear the Great Commission commission with a new voice and a new ear, right? And so you had individuals like William Carey and Hudson Taylor and others um, begin to speak about missions and saying, here, look at the importance of a passage like Matthew 28 and Christ's last commandment to his followers. Hudson Taylor said this, the great commission is not an option to be considered, it is a commandment to be obeyed. William Carey said, is not the commission of our Lord still binding upon us? Can we not do more than now we are doing? And Pat Morley said, if the great commission is true, our plans are not too big. They are too small. Wow. (laughs) Dude, these guys were intense, right? And so while I think that they rediscovered uh, something in Matthew 28, this, and the, it was individuals like these and others who initiated the modern missionary movement and the sending of the church into all the world, and you had all sorts of mission agencies and, and mission schools and, and mission projects happening and what we now commonly think of as overseas missions took place under the, the movement of folks like these. I think it brought the, the, the reintroduction or the, the emphasis on the Great Commission brought a new kind of awkward relationship with the church because there was such now intensity that for many people, we began to start going, oh, gosh, man, that's intimidating. I don't know if I am up for that kind of task, that commission from Jesus. I don't know if I have what, it ha- uh, what, uh, have what it takes to get that done, or if nothing else, I don't know if I have the time and energy to do all this discipleship stuff, right? It's one more thing on my plate. Can't I just worship God in private, or can it just be God and me? I want to try this morning to kind of sap the Great Commission of some of that intensity and power while keeping that focus and that intentionality. I want to look at what it means to do discipleship, but not discipleship as a program, but as a posture, a way of living. And let me then begin um, trying to uh, deconstruct maybe some of our uh, assumptions about what discipleship looks like by um, putting the Great Commission in my own words. This is the Great Commission according to Andrew Tybert. All authority, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. In other words, I'm in charge around here. I'm the big dog, I'm the chief executive. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Or so get moving, move out, and in obedience to me. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, I'll support you all the way. So relax. Enjoy it. Chill out, people. I'm in charge, so get moving, and I will support you in your obedience." What does it mean to look at discipleship, not from a position of a program, but a posture? I think it begins by acknowledging that what Jesus says, that when he says, all authority has been given to me. What does that mean? That means that there's been this great divestment of power in the world. All the systems that were in place, the political powers, the social powers, the spiritual powers, all while seeming to still have um, a huge stake and influence in what's going on in the world, Jesus is now saying they've all been sapped of their power, and in fact, all of that has been brought up under me. It's like what we heard in Ephesians, that all things in heaven and earth have been brought up under Jesus, who's the head, the anakephalio, as Peter has been pointing out, the sacred head wounded. All, uh, Jesus is the big dog. He's in charge around here. And therefore, we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear about what the world has to say in terms of its influence on things. But even more important, we don't have to fear about having the authority, right? It's not us that is doing this task. You know, commission is understood as a uh, someone who's been given authority for a certain kind of task or a certain kind of um, uh, Things to accomplish, right? Do's and and don'ts and so forth. And and, uh, what Jesus is saying is chill out because actually it's not, you're not going uh, from here under your own authority, you're going under mine. I think that's why he brings them back to the mountaintop. Right? And when you look at the passage in Matthew, it says they, he brought them back to a mountaintop in Galilee. And I th- I'm convinced that it's the same mountain in which he originally called the disciples in the first place. If you remember back in the fall, we preached about the calling of the 12 from Mark chapter 1, and it says, Jesus called to him, went up on a mountaintop and called to him those whom he wanted, those who he willed, those who he created, and he established them, he named them apostles, right? And, he, and so he gathered them, a community of people around himself, and in the same place that he had originally gathered them, he is now sending them. He's giving them a commission. He brings them back to that mountaintop experience and, um, and he says, hey, you're my people, you're my community, you're the new creation that I've created, and now I'm giving you a task. But your task is in me. It's under my authority, not your own. So relax. By the way, anytime a mountaintop, a mountain shows up in the Bible, you should pay attention. Because it's code word, it's code language for God's revelation, right? Think of all the places that God reveals himself. Mount Sinai, Mount Calvary, um, on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? I just thought you'd... So so Jesus, by bringing them back to the mountain and saying, pay attention, this is important. And he's saying that to all of us. This is important. You're, You're about to be sent out, but you're sent out in my name, in my authority, Okay? That's the beginning. I think that begins to deconstruct our understanding of discipleship because we realize, okay, it's not my own authority that I have to go and make all these things happen under my strength and my will. It's actually in Him that I move. You, you hear me? But it goes on from there, for it says, he, Jesus says, Go and disciple all the nations. The translation where it says go and make disciples is actually kind of off. It actually literally says go and disciple. Go and and bring people into the school of Jesus, for that's what discipleship is. It's a, it's the, a, the it was the school system of the time, so to speak, right? It was a disciple was a learner, someone who was following in the footsteps of their teacher. Now again, I think we have to deconstruct how we think about what it means to learn, right? Because I think when we think of discipleship, we think of somebody who's in a position of authority, who's got their act together, who knows everything that they need to know about the Christian life, and then they impart it to someone who's beneath them or below them or newer to the faith, right? And so there's some, we create some kind of structure in which that impartation of knowledge about what the Christian life looks like to them, we impart that to them, and that's how we create make disciples. But that can't be further from the truth. It can't be further for the, from the concept of discipleship of, to the time of Jesus. It, in fact, it looked a little, a lot more like, rather than a classroom setting or a Bible study or whatever, it looked a lot more like, hey, sitting around your teacher, following with him, eating meals with him, studying with him, learning from him, taking your posture from him, learning how to live the good life from, from him. And you know what, this, this actually makes sense. Right? It makes sense in in how we're learning. um, We as people, human beings, learn best. Sociologists talk about there are three ways in which we learn. The first is didactically. That means by teaching or instruction, like a classroom setting, right? Oftentimes it has a moral implication. But also we learn through apprenticeships when someone comes alongside us, side us and teaches us a trade or, or shows us the ropes, right? And then finally, we learn through immersion. So think of, of a baby in the United States who learns English, not because anyone necessarily sat that baby down and taught them English, right? Why, how do babies learn English? They're part of a culture that speaks English. And so they just pick it up almost by osmosis. Does that make sense? That's what they call immersion. And so while I, what, what this makes me think about is that the church has been missing out on a whole lot of ways in which we can grow in our discipleship. For most of us, when we think about discipleship in the church, we think of it primarily through didactic terms, right? So we do Bible studies. We put emphasis on Preaching, right? We do Sunday school classes. We think in terms of programs and education. And that's not to minimize the value of those things. But what about apprenticeship? What about immersion? If if we don't think and have a broader sense of how we train and educate ourselves in the life of Jesus, we're missing out on two-thirds of the ways in which we learn. And in fact, the two best ways in which we learn. For sociologists are also finding that the didactic approach is the most artificial approach to learning for human beings. Rather, it's so much better follow in someone's footsteps or be a part of a culture. You pick things up without even, you're caught. in fact, you're constantly learning, right? So I think about, about like my relationship with my father. Peter did this really good job a couple weeks ago about imitating the Father in heaven as beloved children and he talked about this picture of his own dad who showed him what it was to be a, a pastor and um, a follower of Jesus and the same is true for me. My dad is the model for me of what it means to be a good husband and what it is to be a good pastor. And uh, God willing, he'll be the model for me of what it means to be a good father. And yet all those things, husband, pastor, father, most of his influence on me was before I even became a husband or a pastor or a father. In fact, being a pastor wasn't on any of our radar screens when I was growing up. When people used to ask me, um, are you following in dad's footsteps? I was like, heck no. <laughs> that calling didn't emerge until later on in my adult life and yet, to this day, everything I know about being a good pastor comes from watching my dad. From, from growing up in the family, the Tibert family, and watching how he did things and he didn't even know he was discipling me and yet he was. I think that's what's going on with Naomi and Ruth. Why did Ruth want to leave her family system and her, her ethnic heritage and stuff and cling to Naomi and be brought into a new family, the, these Israelites? I think there was all kinds of discipleship happening through modeling. That's why Jesus calls, I think Jesus calls his disciples back to Galilee. In a sense, he's bringing them back to their roots their history, their common history together with him. When he, called, when he first called them and engaged in ministry, as he moved and walked around the lands of Galilee, healing and teaching and, and bringing new life and shaking things up, they got to walk, they got like a first-rate education on what it means to, to um, follow or move in the, in the school of Jesus, right? And he was saying, hey, come back and remember your roots because this is what I want you to do. Does that make sense? Share life with each other in such a way and with others that people come to know me and they be be brought into my life. Now, we have a tendency to turn that into programs, right? So you find books like The 12 Steps of Discipleship and The Master Plan of Evangelism Right? But uh, Peter pointed this out to me in our um, Bible study on Wednesday. He said, Isn't it interesting that nowhere do we find in the New Testament a reproduction of this particular model um, of a discipleship, of 12 people gathered around one individual? Right? You don't see that reproduced anywhere in the New Testament or the early church. But. You see all kinds of tonal or postures that are similar to that. So you see like Paul say something like this, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? Or you see Paul send other individuals like Timothy and Epaphroditus and others and plant them into church communities and say, hey, if you have questions, look to these individuals because they live and embody the kind of life that I want to see, fostered in your community. There's all kinds of modeling and apprenticeship and immersion going on all through the New Testament. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at when he gives us the great commission, this task of bringing people into the school of Jesus. He says, walk and talk and move in such a way with people in your families and in your churches and in your communities and your places of work in such a way that they come to know and want to be a part of that that community, that life, that life of Jesus, and that they want to further grow in it. And that's why he says, baptize them in my name and teach them all of my commandments. Baptize them, you know what baptism literally means? Immersion. I, that's why I love baptism because I think it has something to say to us about what we're supposed to be doing, right? It's not just a ritual that we're performing to signify some uh, grand decision. What it's saying is, hey, we're creating a culture here. When we baptize, we're creating a, a, a culture in which we're growing into the life, the triune life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why I think we should make a big deal about baptism. We should be making a big deal about it all the time because it helps us create a culture of discipleship. Hey, we're all in this together. We're growing in this school following the way of Jesus. In fact, I wanna put this on your radar screen. We're having our banquet service today, right? In three months, we'll be having our next banquet service and we're gonna call that Baptism Sunday and we're gonna get everyone who wants to get baptized We're gonna have a church service here, a short service here, and then we're gonna go down to the river where we've rented space by a park, and Peter and I are gonna be baptizing people all over the place, and we're gonna have a big picnic, and we're gonna have a big meal, and we're gonna create a culture, an immersive culture of Jesus' followers. Doesn't that sound exciting? It sounds exciting to me. Uh, What does it look like to baptize people, introduce them into the life of Jesus, and then to grow them in the life of Jesus. When I dream about the church here, downtown, the sanctuary, I dream about us sharing our lives in such a way that, we're, that Jesus is using you and I to model him to one another, right? And it's this interpre- interpenetrating life Together, And that's, the, that's why we do like these programs. Uh, we, that's why we have programs, is not for their own sake. We're not trying to just create a bunch of programs so that you could participate in them. We're trying to do something, you, the first steps, so to speak, create a little bit of a structure so that you might grow into that kind of life. Right? So we have things like, the banquet service and Jubilee and neighborhood gatherings and house gatherings and our mission partners, not for their own sake, but they're the first steps in a dance lesson. That's what I love about Peter's illustration of uh, dance lessons for zombies, right? It's just because we're first beginning ha- learning how to, these programs, these situations, they, fir- they, help, they, they help teach us the dance steps, and at first it feels a little artificial, but before you know it, you start hearing the music and flowing in it, and then you start dancing, and you get lost in the dance, right? Or think about it this way. This is my philosophy on how we do programs here at the church. Programs are like the trellis and the vine. You are you familiar with vines and how they grow best? They grow best on these structures called trellises, right? And the trellises exist so that the organic life which is the vine, might flourish. That's when they're functioning at their best. The problem is when the chalice becomes, exists for its own sake, right? And that's the same is true for the different programs. Like, uh, they exist to help us get lost in the dance. So, the banquet service is not just so we can have a meal, just to kill time. I'm sure that there's a lot of things that we could do with our life, in other ways other than a big meal afterwards, but we do the banquet service because of the conviction that there's value in sharing a meal together. Some of the best conversations, I'm convinced, take place over the dinner table and in long car rides rides on road trips. But you know, at the time of Jesus, when you you would have a meal together, it was like inviting family, inviting people into the family. Or the Jubilee service, so it's not so that, we don't do the Jubilee service where we go somewhere else and and serve just because it's the good thing or the right thing to do, or that we're trying to appease our guilty conscience. No, we serve together because as we serve together, we grow together. Neighborhood gatherings, Bible studies, small groups, NUMA, right, Um, the grief class, All these kinds of things that we have going on that you see on um, our posters, where we we gather together sharing common interests and topics and struggles. They exist to create space so that we could grow closer with one another and encourage one another and share our life stories and find support. I love them. And house gatherings. Man, I want you in a house gathering. Not because I want to see the programs flourish, because there's something about getting together in each other's homes where we open up our lives to one another and there's no more fooling around. You can only do that for so long when you let somebody in, right? And then you start getting real. And at first it feels awkward and then it saves your life. Or our mission partners. When I, You know, we've been pro- promoting our mission partners downstairs for the last month. Why do we do that? Why do we engage in partnerships with ministries and missions both here locally and around the world? It's because that seeking the benefit of our neighborhood neighbors, both local and global in service, we're participating in the life of God. And I was thinking about our mission partners and I was thinking, man, that's what they're doing is discipleship, Mean Streets, Streets Hope, Women with a Cause, Young Life, Men and Women at the Cross, I mean, uh, Cadence International, all of them, in some form or another, are life-on-life ministry, bringing people in, creating a culture, empowering, enriching, building up, walking others deeper and deeper into the life of Jesus. Hey, you're gonna have a chance afterwards in our banquet service to meet some of the people doing those ministries. There's about four tables set up downstairs and I invite you to go and check some of them out. Sit around a table, sit around a meal and learn about what they're doing and get more interested in how you can participate in what they're about. There's also gonna be a group of a couple guys downstairs who are gonna be talking about doing a mission trip together as the church. I don't care what you look into, but it's just neat for an opportunity to have a meal together and learn more about what discipleship looks like in its many shapes and forms. But like I said, when I dream, I dream not about a program flourishing. I dream about the organic life, which is church flourishing. And these programs help us begin to model the Jesus life to one another. That Jesus uses you and I to image him in the world. And then it takes all the pressure off, doesn't it? Well, you know that there's discipleship going on all the time, and all we need to do is be a little bit more intentional with the sharing of our life with one another. Now, you may still be saying to me, oh, God, thinking, oh, gosh, Andrew, sure. That's easy for you to say. You're like this outgoing, you know, fun. You're just drawing everybody in. And listen, I am who I am because I had it modeled to me and I'm not always fun, and I'm not always outgoing, and sometimes I don't want to hang out with people, but I know that there's so much life-giving power there. And then let me just say this. If you're questioning, okay, but Paul might say, uh, imitate me as I imitate Christ, but I certainly couldn't do that. Well, let me point these two facts out for you. First, when Jesus calls his disciples to him, and he gives them this task of uh, bringing people into the school of Jesus, he calls them and they, it, the text says he come, they come as 11. Did you notice that? There was 11 of them, why? Because they were a broken fellowship. They were incomplete. Someone had abandoned and betrayed and in his betrayal revealed all of their own betrayal. And so when it says that they came as 11, they, it, like for me that text positively limps up to Galilee, right? They're weak and they're frail and they're broken and yet that's exactly who Jesus is going to use to engage in his mission in the world, a frail, broken church. That's one. Two, it says that they worshiped him at the, on that mountain, but did you also notice that it also says, and some doubted? So they were doubting worshipers. How can that be, right? Well, I think, in part, it's because we're all composite, right? And we all have a ton of different emotions and whatnot. And sure, we come and want to worship Jesus and, and, and love him, and yet there's a part of us that always doubts. But you know what? I think there's a, something else maybe going on there. I don't know if they were just doubting him, right? Because you're sitting there going, how are you doubting Jesus? He just was raised from the dead. You saw him die? What's there to doubt? Well, maybe they were doubting themselves, And maybe they were doubting that he could use even them. And yet I think God loves to use doubting worshipers. And so that's why we gather. We gather in this place, centered in our life around Jesus, worshiping him. We gather to worship and to bring our doubts and to bring our fears and to bring our mixed emotions and bring all our hesitancy about his Desire to use us in such a way. But but we bring all of that and we worship him and as we worship him, he's going to build us as a community and then he's going to send us. Send us into the world so that we might bring all nations, all peoples into the school of Jesus. And so to, to this morning, let's center our life around him. Let's put aside our fears and relax and chill out. Because all authority has been given to him in heaven on earth. And he is sending, he's giving us a task, but he doesn't give us a task without supplying resources. He says, I am with you always. He speaks in the present, not the future. He doesn't say, I will be with you. He says, I am with you always to the ends of the earth. I, maybe we need to realize that the task at hand of discipling the world is not just ours, it is fundamentally his. And he's going to use you and I and this community to accomplish his purposes. And so this morning I pass on to you what was first entrusted to me, that on the night our Savior was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, take, eat, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the, the cup, the cup of the new covenant, and he says, this is my blood poured out, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And I, I wonder, I wonder that every time we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, if we are not entering into the school of Jesus, if we're not immersing ourselves in his life, if we're not surrounding ourselves as a community around him and allowing him to model to us what it means to really live. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Here, worshiping this morning, and you're having you're doubting, right? Even in as you're worshiping, you're doubting that that's true. Hey, I want to invite you, come down. We have prayer ministers down here, allow God to, allow Jesus to use them to disciple you. Allow him to speak into your life and bring you into the school of Jesus and so that you might live and find your life in him and his life in you. And we want that for you and we want uh, to be a community, a culture, we wanna be immersive in that message, right? And then live that for the world. And if you're thinking about leaving here after the service and going home and not going down, I know you're tempted, I know you're tempted to leave. But just know this, if you go downstairs and we have a meal together, it might feel awkward at first, sure, like dance lessons, right? But you might have a chance to meet someone and make a connection, and then you might find yourself a part of a community, and then before you know it, you're growing, and now you find a place where you belong, and then you wanna share that sense of belonging with others, and that's how discipleship happens. So don't miss out on that opportunity. Come downstairs, and I want you to learn about um, Open Door Ministries and Women with a Cause and uh, the men and women at the cross, the cross ministry group, and and learn if you're interested in an overseas mission trip. There's gonna be tables set up where you can sit down and have awesome, great food and learn a bit about their hearts and what they're doing to disciple all the peoples of the world, right? and and may God's glory and his grace and his love move out from this place and saturate the world until all things are brought up under him, Jesus, who is the head, amen? Amen. Okay, so let me pray uh, for our meal and then I'm sending you out from this place and downstairs to uh, fellowship, all right? God, thank you for your grace and your mercy and how your love never ends. Thank you for your provision in our life Help us to not take that for granted. And God, would you bless the food and the conversations and may you make connections and use the different relationships that are formed downstairs for your glory so that we might all be brought into the way, the school of Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray, saying amen. Hey friends, go in peace today and we'll see you downstairs.